I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Thank you very much indeed. Um, we're also extremely excited that Patty can be um, here with us tonight. My name is Gareth Evans. I'm co-director with Di Robson here of Art Events. And we're very, very pleased indeed to be um, hosting Patty uh, in, uh, in Snape, in Snape Maltings in Suffolk for the world premiere of our film uh, this weekend about W.G. Sabalt. Uh, this is a film called Patience After Sabalt by the award-winning filmmaker Grant G. And we're extremely pleased that Patty um, can be with us there um, in Suffolk on Saturday for an exclusive concert around the ideas and the locations of WG Sabalt. But she's very, very kindly agreed to be here tonight in London um, with a very, very busy schedule. Some of you might have known and might even have been at the Royal Geographical Society last night where she was in conversation with Jeff Dyer. Tomorrow she'll be playing a benefit for St. Giles's Church, um, to which she is very committed and has played benefits there for before. So we're very, very pleased that she can take time now um, to be with us here for a reading. And, and what the, I think this is great, uh, this event does, is stress... Patty's importance as a writer. Um, none of you need um, any telling that, of course, she's just won the National Book Award for Just Kids. But it was as a poet that um, Patty was first published back in 1971 with Seventh Heaven, then with collections like Kodak and Wit and Babel. And it was that that led through into her career and obviously extraordinary influence um, in, in music. But we're very, very pleased that tonight we'll be focusing on Patty's writing and reading. Um, so very, very distinctive to be here in this extraordinary bookshop to do that. And as always, for so many reasons, thanks to everyone here at the LRB shop, to John, to Laura, to Charlie, to David, to Claire, to Terry, for extra- her extraordinary cake, um, which I hope we can maybe bring out later, um, which she gave to Patty. Fantastic cake, love and inspiration, which is absolutely what we all feel tonight. Um, we're very, very pleased indeed to be here. Um, and now um, I would like, just before I introduce Patty Smith again and ask her to read, just to say that we won't be in a position to um, sign books with Patty afterwards. She's been rehearsing all day and has a very busy schedule. But all these wonderful books are already signed, including many rare editions from um, Europe and the, and the US. Um, so do please take a look at them afterwards. We will be taking a few questions um, after the reading, but now do please join me in thanking Patty Smith for being here tonight. Uh, hello, everybody. Um, I'm, uh, well, first of all, uh, I want to thank Terry for the cake. It was so pretty, and I didn't want to touch it, but uh, it was just sitting there, and so was I, and I didn't have a knife, and uh, so I've made a 
a bit of a mess downstairs and um, it's really good cake. And um, so I'm always happy to uh, visit a bookstore. I worked in uh, three or four bookstores um, when I was young uh, from 1967 to uh, up to the time I uh, uh, recorded horses. I was working in um, bookshops and very proud to, uh, to do so. And um, so, I mean, many times uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, not many of my friends had jobs and they couldn't understand, you know, what kind of working class sensibility drove me to keep a steady job. Well, part of it was I really liked working in a bookstore. I love books and I was quite proud uh, to have a job in a bookstore. And um, so I'm glad to be here. So um, uh, this book, I thought I would start out by um, reading the uh, a note to the reader, which is in the paperback. Um, when I did the, uh, I redesigned the paperback uh, partially because I have some very young, generous, crazy fans who like to buy both kinds, and I thought they should get something special. So I redesigned it for them, and I added uh, 16 pages. And um, one of the things I did was to answer one of the questions that people most ask me, uh, why did you write the book? So I'll write this li read this first. On March 8, 1989, Robert and I had our last conversation, the last, that is, in human form. He knew he was dying, and yet there was still a note of hope, a singular and obdurate thread woven in the timber of his voice. I asked him what he wanted me to do for him, and he said, Take care of my flowers. He asked me to write an introduction to his flower book. They are color flowers, and I know you prefer the black and white ones, so perhaps you won't like them. I will like them, I said, and I will do it. It's just like Robert, you know, is hours away from uh, losing his life, and we were, he was still, Patty, I don't think you're going to like these. You like the, <laughs> you like the uh, black and white ones. This is a color one, and I don't know if you're going to like the color ones. And I said, oh, I, I love them already. I love them. <laughs> So, I will like them, I said, and I will do it. I told him that I would continue our work, our collaboration, for as long as I lived. Will you write our story? Do you want me to? You have to, he said. No one but you can write it. I will do it, I promised, though I knew it would be a vow very difficult to keep. I love you, Patty. I love you, Robert. And he was wheeled away for tests and I never heard him speak again, save for his breath, which seemed to fill the hospital room as he lay dying. I wrote the poem for his memorial card, as I had done for his patron, Sam Wagstaff. On the 22nd of May, my husband Fred and I attended the service for Robert at the Whitney Museum. Fred wore a suit of indigo gabardine with a burgundy tie. I mention that because 
My late husband was very particular about how he dressed for things, and it took him several days to decide on what to wear to Robert's memorial, and uh, he was, of course, the handsomest man there. I wore my Easter dress of black silk velvet with a white lace collar. There were two grand vases and white lilies flanking the podium. His flowers hung on the wall. As I sung his memorial song, I held the image of him from two decades before, smoking a cigarette outside the Whitney Museum, waiting for me to emerge. Robert's entire family was present. His father, Harry, greeted me with warmth and compassion. His mother, Joan, was in a wheelchair, fitted with a small oxygen tent. When I knelt to kiss her goodbye, she pressed my hand. You're a writer, she whispered with some effort. Write me a line. I imagined she meant a letter, but Joan passed away just three days later and was buried at Our Lady of the Snows. I wrote the piece for flowers. I honored Joan's request, and then I wrote the Coral Sea and made drawings in remembrance of him. But the story was obliged to await until I could find the right voice. There are many stories I could write you about Robert, about us, but as this is the story I have told. It is the one he wished me to tell, and I have kept my promise. We were as Hansel and Gretel, and we ventured out into the black forest of the world. There were temptations and witches and demons we never dreamed of, and there was splendor we only partially imagined. No one could speak for these two young people, nor tell with any truth of their days and nights together. Only in Robert and I could tell it, our story as he called it. And having gone, he left this task to me to tell to you. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> always it's always a trauma am I supposed to call am I supposed to clap now should I not clap can I laugh can I you can do whatever you want so I know you're here and if I think you're sleeping I'll just give you a tap Robert Michael Maplethorpe was born on Monday November 4th 1946 he was raised in Floral Park, Long Island, the third of six children. He was a mischievous little boy whose carefree youth was delicately tinged with a fascination with beauty. His young eyes stored away each play of light, the sparkle of a jewel, the rich dressing of an altar, the burnish of a gold-toned saxophone, or a field of blue stars. He was gracious and shy with a precise nature. He contained, even at an early age, a stirring and the desire to stir. The light fell upon the pages of his coloring book across his child's hands. Coloring excited him, but not the act of filling in the spaces, but choosing colors that no one would select. In the green of the hills he saw red, purple snow, green skin, silver sun, he liked the effect it had on others, that it disturbed his siblings. He discovered he had a talent for sketching. 
He was a natural draftsman, and he secretly twisted and abstracted his images, feeling his growing powers. He was an artist, and he knew it. It was not a childish notion. He merely acknowledged that's what he was. The light fell upon the components of Robert's beloved jewelry kit, upon the bottles of enamel and tiny brushes. His fingers were nimble. He delighted in his ability to piece together and decorate brooches for his mother. He wasn't concerned that this was a girl's pursuit, that a jewelry-making kit was a traditional Christmas gift for a girl. His older brother, a whiz at sports, would snicker at him as he worked. His mother, Joan, chain-smoked and admired the sight of her little son sitting at the table, dutifully stringing yet another necklace of tiny Indian beads for her. They were precursors of the necklace he would later adorn himself with, having broken from his father, leaving his Catholic, commercial, and military options behind in the wake of LSD and a commitment to live for art alone. So, um, that's okay. Robert, <laughs> Robert and I were the same age. Uh, he was a month older than I was. And um, coincidentally, in 1967, while Robert was making, at 20 years old, a very bold uh, break from his family and from their uh, traditional ways, I had all also left um, my family, who were not traditional. I just needed to leave. I needed to go. I needed to get out of rural South Jersey. Um, there wasn't any work there. Uh, there was a factory there, a terrible place to work. Um, I got jobs in Philadelphia and then got laid off. In 1967, in the area I came from, jobs were hard to come by because there was a great big um, shipping. The New York, New York shipyard was located in my area and had 40,000 people work there. And when they closed the shipyard... Everybody was out of work. So for a 20-year-old girl with not much skills and some education, uh, there really wasn't any work for me. Um, a lot of people think I went to New York City because it was cool or because, you know, I was uh, bold or because, you know, I wanted to be a beatnik. But I really went to New York City to get a job because there was lots of bookstores uh, in New York City, and I felt that I was an expert on books, and I could get a job in a bookstore. And uh, that's where I met Robert. I met Robert actually in Brooklyn, and we collided a few times. And uh, the first time that Robert and I actually spoke and spent time speaking, we stayed talking all through the night, um, walked around New York City all night long, and... Uh, I didn't know it, but he was on acid at the time. Um, and at the end of the night, um, we both sort of simultaneously said, can I stay with you? And we found that either one of us had a place to live. And uh, so we were well-suited for one another. But he found a place for us to stay at one of his roommates, and then we never parted. We found each other, and that was that. And... Uh, and then went through a long evolution of inventing and reinventing 
our love and our friendship and the work that we did together. And that's what this little book is about. It's not really, there's some rock and roll in it, there's some this and that in it, but what it's really about is being 20 years old, finding someone that really believed in me and I could believe in and evolving with this person and our trials and tribulations and triumphs. So so I'll find, um, is everybody okay? Are we good? Okay. I'll pick out a, I didn't really uh, plan anything. Um, just figured I'd open it up. I'm sorry. I don't like to talk on the phone, so it's my daughter. She's the only person that, uh, sorry, she's sending her mom a message. I won't look at it, though. It would, might draw me into a whole other world. A wonderful world, but another world. So I went to New York City. Robert and I uh, found a little apartment in Brooklyn. And uh, I'll read a little bit about our um, apartment there. When I came to New York, I had brought a few colored pencils and a wood slate to draw on. I had drawn a girl at a table before a spread of cards, a girl divining her fate. It was the only drawing I had to show Robert, which he liked very much. He wanted me to experiment working with fine paper and pencils, and he shared his materials with me. We would work side by side for hours in a state of mutual concentration. We hadn't much money, but we were happy. Robert worked part-time and took care of the apartment. I did the laundry, and I made our meals, which were very limited. Nothing like that cake. There was an Italian bakery we frequented. We would choose a nice loaf of day-old bread or a quarter pound of their stale cookies offered at half price. Robert had a sweet tooth, so the cookies often won out. Sometimes the woman behind the counter would give us some extra ones and shake her head at us and murmur some friendly disapproval. Most likely she could tell it was our dinner. We would get some takeout coffee and a carton of milk. Robert loved chocolate milk, but it was more expensive, and we would have to deliberate whether to spend the extra dime. We had our work and one another. We didn't have the money to go to concerts or movies or buy new records, but we played the ones we had over and over. We listened to My Madam Butterfly, as sung by Eleanor Steber, A Love Supreme, Between the Buttons, Joan Baez and Blonde on Blonde. Robert introduced me to his favorites, Vanilla Fudge. This Vanilla Fudge record, I have to tell you. I mean, I'm from South Jersey. They, vanilla Fudge, you you go down to the shore and you buy it and you eat it. But um, anyway, he had this Vanilla Fudge record. And uh, I always knew that a friend of his had given him a tab of acid because He'd come home and sort of mm-hmm, start smiling, and on would come the Vanilla Fudge record. <laughs> and we'd have to listen to Vanilla Fudge all night long. But uh, now, when I hear it, it's, I, I get very excited. 
and then turn it off. <laughs> Robert also loved Tim Buckley and Tim Harden, and he had a history of Motown, and we'd, we used to play that all the time and dance, and then argue over who is the best dancer. <laughs> this music provided the backdrop for our nights of communal joy. One Indian summer day, we dressed in our favorite things, me in my beatnik sandals and ragged scarves, and Robert with his love beads and sheepskin vest. We took the subway to West 4th Street and spent the afternoon in Washington Square. We shared coffee from a thermos, and we watched the stream of tourists, stoners, and folk singers. Agitated revolutionaries distributed their anti-war leaflets. Chess players drew a crowd of their own. Everyone coexisted within the continuous drone of verbal diatribe, bongos, and barking dogs. We were walking toward the fountain, the epicenter of activity, when an older couple stopped and openly observed us. Robert enjoyed being noticed, and he affectionately squeezed my hand. Oh, take their picture, said the woman to her bemused husband. I think they're artists. I'll go on, he shrugged. They're just kids. Hence the title. <laughs> so, it, <laughs> thanks. It's funny because originally I was going to call the book Picturing Robert, but then a book came out um, called Picturing Hemingway, and I thought, so now I have to, as if there's not enough Hemingway books, they had to take my title. So I, had, I needed another title, and um, so I was going through my journals from, uh, from the late 60s and 70s, and I found this little story um, uh, in one of my journals, and I thought, that's it. That's what I'll call it, because that's what we were um, at 20. I'm happy to say we were kids. So Robert and I lived in Brooklyn, and as it's well known, Robert um, went through a long internal um, voyage of self-discovery and um, wrestled with the fact that his sexual orientation uh, was driving his nature um, in another direction. And this was came to be quite a surprise to me because... He was my boyfriend. I didn't, you know, it never occurred to me that he was suffering this. There was nothing in his demeanor or nothing, you know, to signal this to me. And this was um, the greatest crisis of our young life to um, uh, get through this period and uh, and get through all of the things. It's not wasn't just a matter of my acceptance. It was a matter of his own acceptance and then accepting that each of us would have a new boyfriend. So um, we went through many painful things. But then in 1969, we found that when we were apart, we weren't happy. So we went uh, to the Chelsea Hotel together and tried to start again. And uh, so I'll take us to the Chelsea Hotel. I'm in a Mike Hammer mode, 
puffing on cools, reading cheap detective novels, sitting in the lobby waiting for William Burroughs. He comes in dressed to the nines in a dark gabardine overcoat, gray suit and tie. I sit for a few hours at my post scribbling poems. He comes stumbling out of the El Quixote, a bit drunk and disheveled. I straighten his tie, hail him a cab. It's our unspoken routine. In between, I clock the action, eyeing the traffic circulating the lobby hung with bad art. Big, invasive stuff unloaded on Stanley Bard in exchange for rent. The hotel is an energetic, desperate haven for scores of gifted, hustling children from every rung of the ladder. Guitar bums and stoned-out beauties in Victoria's dresses, junky poets, playwrights, broke-down filmmakers, and French actors. Everybody passing through here is somebody, even if they're nobody in the outside world. The elevator is slow going. I get off. I go to the seventh floor to see if Harry Smith is around. I place my hand on the doorknob, sensing nothing but silence. The yellow walls of the Chelsea have an institutional feel like a middle school prison. I use the stairs and return to our room. I take a piss in the hallway bathroom we share with some unknown inmates. I unlock our door. No sign of Robert save a note on the mirror. Went to 42nd Street. Love you. Blue. I see he's straightened his stuff. Men's magazines neatly piled. Chicken wire and rolled and tied and spray cans lined in a row under the sink. I fire up a hot plate. I get some water from the tap. You gotta let the water run for a while because it comes out brown. It's just minerals and rust. That's what Harry says. My stuff is in the bottom drawer. Tarot cards, silk ribbons, a jar of Nescafe, and my own cup, a childhood relic with the likeness of Uncle Wiggly Rabbit Gentleman. I drag out my Remington from under the bed, adjust the typewriter ribbon, insert a fresh sheet of fool's cap. There's a lot to report. <laughs> I'll see what... Uh, couple adventures from the Chelsea. Anybody have any questions or anything? Anything so far? You're all right? I don't want to hog up all the talking. If you <laughs> Although I'm really likely to do that. So. I'll see. I know I should have, you know, put like things in the book, but I didn't. Oh, I'll read you. This is a nice little thing. This, uh, this is uh, a little vignette about the end of the 60s. It snowed on Christmas night. Robert and I walked to Times Square to see the white billboard proclaiming, War is over if you want it. Happy Christmas from John and Yoko. It hung above the bookstall where Robert bought most of his men's magazines between Childs and Benedict's, two all-night diners. Looking up, we were struck by the ingenuous humanity of this New York City tableau. Robert took my hand, and as the snow swirled around, I glanced at his face. He narrowed his eyes and nodded in affirmation, impressed to see artists take on 42nd Street. For me, it was the message, for Robert, the medium. 
Newly inspired, we walked back to our new space on 23rd Street. The necklaces we made hung on hooks, and he had tacked up some of our drawings. We stood at the window and looked out at the snow falling behind the fluorescent oasis sign with its squiggly palm tree. Look, he said, it's snowing in the desert. I thought about a scene in Howard Hawks' movie Scarface where Paul Muni and his girl looking out the window at a neon sign that said, The world is yours. Robert squeezed my hand. The 60s were coming to an end. Robert and I celebrated our birthdays. Robert turned 23. Then I turned 23, the perfect prime number. Robert gave me a tie rack with the image of the Virgin Mary. I gave him seven silver skulls on a length of leather. He wore the skulls. I wore a tie. We felt ready for the 70s. It's our decade, he said. All right, now are you ready? It's what you've all been waiting for, the exciting true story of, uh, of an infamous meeting. Horn and Hard Arts was the queen of automats and was just past the fish and tackle shop near that Chelsea Hotel. The routine was you get a seat in a tray and then you go to the back wall where there were rows of little windows. You would slip some coins into a slot, open the glass hatch, and extract a sandwich or a fresh apple pie. It was a real Tex Avery eatery. My favorite was chicken pot pie or cheese and mustard with lettuce on a poppy seed roll. Robert liked their two specialties, baked macaroni and cheese and chocolate milk. Together. (laughs) I was always hungry. I metabolized my food quickly. Robert could go without eating much longer than me. If we were out of money, we just didn't eat. Robert might be able to function, even if he got a little shaky, but I would feel like I was going to pass out. One drizzly afternoon, I had a hankering for one of those cheese and lettuce sandwiches. I went through our belongings and found exactly 55 cents. I slipped on my gray trench coat, my Mayakovsky cap, and I headed for the automat. I got my tray and slipped in my coins, but the window wouldn't open. I tried again without luck, and then I noticed the price had gone up to 65 cents. I was disappointed, to say the least, when I heard a voice say, Can I help? I turned around, and it was Allen Ginsberg. We had never met. We had never met, but there was no mistake in the face of one of our great poets and activists. I looked into those intense dark eyes, punctuated by his dark curly beard, and I just nodded. Alan added the extra dime and also stood me for a cup of coffee. I wordlessly followed him to this table, and then I plowed into the sandwich. Alan introduced himself. He was talking about Walt Whitman, and then I mentioned I was raised near Camden, where Whitman was buried, when he leaned forward and looked at me intently. Are you a girl, he said. (laughs) Yeah, I said. Is that a problem? He just laughed. 
I'm sorry, I took you for a very pretty boy. I got the picture immediately. Well, does that mean I got to return the sandwich? Oh, no, enjoy it. It was my mistake. He told me he was writing a long elegy for Jack Kerouac, who had recently passed away. Three days after Rimbaud's birthday, I said solemnly, and we shook hands and parted company. Sometimes later, Alan became my good friend and teacher. We often reminisced about our first encounter, and he once asked how I would describe how we met. I would say, you fed me when I was hungry. And he did. Well, that took six and a half hours. <laughs> the Polaroid in Robert's hands. The physical act. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The jerk of the wrist, the snapping sound when pulling the shot, and the anticipation 60 seconds to see what he got. The immediacy of the process suited his temperament. At first, he toyed with the camera. He wasn't totally convinced that it was for him, and film was expensive. Ten pictures for about $3, a substantial amount in 1971. But it was some steps away from the photo booth, and the pictures developed unsealed. I was Robert's first model. He was comfortable with me, and he needed time to get his technique down. The mechanics of the camera was simple, but the options were limited. We took countless photographs. At first, he had to rein me in. I would try to get him to take pictures like the album cover for bringing it all back home, where Bob Dylan surrounds himself with all his favorite things. I arranged my dice and Sinner's license plates and a Kurt Vile record, my copy of Blonde on Blonde, and I wore a black slip like Anna Mignani. Too cluttered with crap, he said. Just let me take your picture. But I like this stuff, I said. We're not making an album cover. We're making art. Oh, I hate art, I yelled, <laughs> and he took the picture. He was his own first male subject. No one could question him shooting himself. He had control. He figured out what he wanted to see by seeing himself. He was pleased with his first images, but the cost of film was so high that he was obliged to set the camera aside, but not for long. 
Robert spent a lot of time improving our workspace and the presentation of his work. Sometimes he gave me a worried look. Is everything all right, he would ask. I would tell him not to worry. One afternoon, Gregory Corso came to visit us. He called on Robert first, and they had a smoke. So by the time he came to visit me, the sun was going down. You know, it was like 1971. I didn't start smoking pot till the Rastafarian movement, so like around 74. Because the reason I didn't smoke pot, one, because I couldn't really inhale without coughing for an hour and a half. But the real reason is it seemed to make everybody have to take 25 minutes to do a two-minute thing. You know, like looking for your shoes, and then you get distracted by a picture on the wall, and then you have to go to the bathroom, and then you don't like the color of your pants, and then you change them, and then, you know, you see a book on the shelf that you were looking for, and I would be like, just shoot me, you know, so... I learned in time. (laughs) I was sitting on my floor typing on my Remington. Gregory came in and panned the room slowly. There were piss cups and broken toys. It's because Robert and I never had a bathroom. We We had the smallest room in the Chelsea Hotel that had no bathroom. Then we got a slightly bigger room and had no bathroom. Then we got a workspace three doors down that had no bathroom. So if you wanted to go to the bathroom... You had to go into the Chelsea Hotel and either use a friend's bathroom or one of the, you know, hallway bathrooms. And sometimes if you had to go, you had to go. You know, it's just so, you know, the cups would gather up. (laughs) Didn't bother me because I don't have a very good sense of smell. I mean, I was raised in South Jersey next to a pig farm. I didn't even know it. So uh, so Gregory looked around at piss cups and broken toys. Yeah, this is my kind of place, he said. I dragged over an old armchair. Gregory lit a cigarette and read from my pile of abandoned poems, drifting off, making a little burn mark on the arm of my chair. I poured some of my Nescafe over it. He awoke and drank the rest. I staked him a few bucks for his most pressing needs. As he was leaving... He looked in an old French crucifix hanging over my mat. Beneath the feet of Christ was a little skull embellished with the words, Memento Mori. It means, remember we are mortal, said Gregory, but poetry is not. I just nodded. When he left, I sat down on my chair and ran my fingers over the cigarette burn. It was a fresh scar left by one of our greatest poets, He would always spell trouble, and Gregory might even wreak havoc, yet he gave us a body of work, pure as a newborn fawn. Gregory did become one of my, well, great friend and teacher, and Gregory was the youngest of um, of, uh, that group, um, Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs, and, uh, and some of them were already had passed away, but... They were the big three when I was there, and Gregory was the youngest, and they all felt that Gregory was the most beautiful of the poets, 
and Gregory loved Keats and Shelley. I mean, he ser- he loved them. He would, re- you know, recite them endlessly, and uh, especially Shelley. And when Gregory died, um, some of us worked with the Italian government, and um, he was uh, he was allowed to be buried at the feet of Shelley, and. Um, uh, Right in the uh, American, I think it's it's in the American cemetery in Rome, and Keats is also there, but he's in a different part of town. I mean, Keats is over there, and Shelley's up on a little hill, and Gregory's right at his feet. And um, the first time I went to visit uh, Gregory's grave, um, I was standing there, and uh, I just. I had my Polaroid camera with me, and I only had one picture left. And I was going to take a picture of Gregory's headstone, and I didn't feel any presence of Gregory. And uh, and I was with the my um, my Italian tour manager, who is a very spiritual and superstitious guy. And I uh, I said, Stefano, I don't feel Gregory here. And uh, I said, let's go and see if see if he's hanging out with Shelley. So we just go, and there's Shelley's grave, and there were like three cats there and um, just laying there. And I said, oh, well, I'll take a picture of Shelley's grave. So I took the picture of Shelley's uh, headstone, and when I peeled it, there was this strange dancing light, yeah, just some weird light passing over it. And I looked, and Stefano looked, and he said, Patti! It is Gregory. <laughs> the other thing I noticed was when Gregory's, uh, uh, there was a line of his, po- a couple of lines of his poetry that the, that the Italian uh, carver was, was supposed to etch on his headstone. And one of it, it said something like of the human spirit or something, but he had misspelled it and it, was, it says the human spurt. So I, uh, and I thought that's so Gregory, you know, it's just like, and everybody was up in arms, you know, this is terrible. This is, you know, oh, what a travesty. And they, what should we do? And, and then the master carver died because he was like 90 years old or something. And I said, you know, it's so Gregory, you know, you should just, uh, I don't know if they fixed it or not. They might have, but if they did fix it, if you see it, you know, maybe if you look, you could probably see how they fixed it. But it, sure enough, it said human spurt. So <laughs> anyway, so um, um, any questions? You can ask me anything, like about dental health, anything. <laughs> yes? Well, uh, she has asked how I, uh, oh, Subbold. I've said his name wrong. I'm sorry. In any event, how I discovered uh, uh, Sebald or Sebald, as some of us say. But um, how I, well, I was uh, good friends with Susan Sontag, and she was quite, she was quite taken with him. Uh, You could always count on Susan to tell you great writers. And also, um, uh, I really like uh, Southwald. And that area, because um, my my ancestors are from Norfolk, so I'm, I'm very uh, taken with that area. 
so I read Rings of Saturn. But my friend, the filmmaker, Jem Cohen, gave me a copy of After Nature, and I just really fell in love with that um, because there's something I have a... I like to write in that style, and it was very uh, moving and informative. And um, so, but I never met him. I mean, I think we're about the same age. He might have been two years older than me. So it was tragic to lose him because I thought, oh, great, I found a, somebody who's alive that I like because I'm usually stuck in the 19th century. So I was very happy and very sad that uh, we lost him. But I found him through friends. So, yes. Tell me how you um, encountered, first encountered William Blake. Um, I encountered William Blake through my mother because my mother gave me a copy of uh, Songs of Innocence as a child. Um, I was an avid reader, and I loved ev anything that had to do with, you know, mystical things and elves and fairies and my mother found a little uh, a very nice little copy of songs of innocence at a church bazaar and thought i would like it and uh so my, throughout my early part of my life i thought he was a children's writer i didn't even realize that he had a whole you know breadth of work and um so i really uh, and i gleaned through his writings how much he cared for children you know, how much, you know, um, you know, especially, you know, you, as, as I understood the poems, um, you know, mourning the use of children as chimney sweeps and the like. But, uh, but that's how I, I first encountered Blake. I also liked him because as a young child, I liked the idea of writing stories and then making pictures. And uh, so he was really a template for that uh, pursuit. Yes? Um, I'm glad you mentioned After Nature because it's one of the books I love of Sable's best. I just wondered whether you might read one or two of your poems this evening. Um, well, I could. Uh, let me see. There are some books here. Well, this is a nice little poem. Um, um, I wrote this, I think I was in Belfast when I wrote this. Um, there was a little piece in a newspaper saying how a fella named, uh, I don't know exactly where it was, but I was in Ireland. Um, and a, a fella named Willie the Tramp was uh, bludgeoned to death. And the people were um, horrified because Willie, uh, Willie the Tramp was beloved by the people um, they just got used to him being around. And I thought that it was uh, such a touching, sad little story. And um, so I wrote this poem, and it's called Death of a Tramp. The hills were green, and so were we, but not in the way men talk about. We had not known death, nor walked with stain, for all was bright about the hand. We had not known death, yet the sparrow's ring, set like a wreath upon the marsh, marked for all that shivered cross in cast-off clothes, himself cast off. In sun and wind, his tramping drum, 
the high grass knew his shuffling. Kindness wrapped his being mild. His countenance moved the brethren. The stench and sense of aimless wrath. Now we know death, not so the man. A wildflower stowed in ragged breast. And the hills are grieved, their innocence. This is a little uh, poem I wrote. Uh, my husband died in uh, November of 94, and a month later, uh, my brother followed him. And uh, my brother had a little girl, and I wrote this poem for her. To his daughter, what is the heart but a small hand of agonies? What is the immobile stag but a blessing disguised within the pages of a book? Little one, set down your hymnal, rested upon your knee. Tears may stain the fragile leaf. Let them fall, let them fall. Your father has rushed forth in a column of mist. Now you seek him in columns of words, waters, and stone. He is here, little heart. The stag fell under the stroke and into a blackness so bright as to fold light. Here, pressed between him and him, a perfect thorn, the spear of your father's love. The heart faltered and fell, the red-skinned heart. He is the gust that lifts a bit of sail to press your cheek, wipe the tears. A bit of sail without moral, turning like an apron upon a cloud. Uh, this is a little poem that I wrote in 1971, actually. Um, my friend Sam Shepard and I um, both had a simultaneous dream about Bob Dylan. And uh, so I wrote this poem. And some years later, I met uh, Mr. Dylan on the street. And uh, he said, um, uh, Patty, <laughs> uh, what's this uh, dog dream all about? And I said, uh, I don't know, Bob. It was, it was just a dream. So. A true story. <laughs> Have you seen Dylan's dog? It got wings. It can fly. If you speak of it to him, it's the only time Dylan can't look you in the eye. <laughs> Have you held Dylan's snake? It rattles like a toy. It sleeps in the grass. It coils in his hand. It hums and it strikes out when Dylan cries out, when Dylan cries out. Have you pressed to your face Dylan's bird, Dylan's bird? It lies on Dylan's hip, trembles inside of him. It drops upon the ground. It rolls with Dylan round. It's the only one 
who comes when Dylan comes. Have you seen Dylan's dog? He got wings, it can fly. When it lands like a clown, he's the only thing allowed to look Dylan in the eye. So it's about time. I have a few more minutes. And uh, so I'll get back to the. Any more questions? Yeah. I always like the question part. It's like open up in a Cracker Jack box and That's right. look I'll for your prize and see what it is. I'll do my best to oblige. <laughs> um, I was interested in what it must be like to, to spend a lot of time in a, a long time past, in a time that I. I don't remember because I was too young, but I'm captivated by it. Is it. Does it feel okay to go back there and spend all that time there and then c to come back to the world that, we w that we're looking at today? Uh, and, and how does it affect your, um, what you're making now, that's new, the creativity? And I'm interested also, it's a sort of another well, question. But let's start with that. Yeah, one. okay. Yeah. I think that's enough. That's, that's a good enough. <laughs> well, I mean... Personally, I don't really live in one particular time. I mean, I'm in present time, but I think human beings, uh, we, don't, we don't operate like that. We're all our ages, and they're all within us, within memory or, you know, our actions or, you know, gestures or within our children. Or, and, uh, you know, I didn't... Sometimes I, I needed, like you say, to go back and really concentrate and focus and try to visualize things like a movie so I could tell it to, to all. And, um, and sometimes it's just within me. You know, it feels like certain things are happening simultaneously. It's one thing I like about this After Nature book by Siebold. He, uh, he addresses that, this simultaneousness, this, this almost like the time, we're like time travelers. We're living in the present but we're always visualizing the future and, and sensing the past on our back. Sometimes it was a burden doing it. You know, it made me sad or I just, you know, just wanted to, not just about talking about the past, but talking about myself, you know. I just wanted to make up a new character. And, uh, but I'm happy I did it. And really, in doing it, there's a lot of peripheral stuff that I also wrote simultaneously that wasn't suited for the book because this book was its you know mission was to be focused on Robert and to give the people Robert as a human being but I have a lot of stories to tell so you know I'm sure that I'll continue writing you know within the same time period because there's many things to talk about the work one does or the songs one, we wrote or uh, the people that other people I've known. But uh, I also, you know, I'm really happy to step out of any time period, not be, uh, and just, you know, write from the imagination that has no time at all. So I hope that answers your question. One last one. You, you were... No, I, I have to, people ask me, you know, have you learned anything new about Robert or did you have an epiphany? Uh, and really, 
what I found was I always knew this story and it's in there and when I look at it now or check it out it's exactly the story I know I can I can look in that book and see us I can find us even though it's a very simple book and uh doesn't tell everything it tells what I could tell in in the context of this book but there I really feel like the atmosphere and and these two people are there and uh I always knew what Robert meant to me. He was always kind to me, always funny, always a bit scolding when I faltered or lost confidence, um, but always really loving if I um, felt great sorrow. Um, you know, he, I, he's, uh, he never, to, to the end of his life, he was always himself. You know, he didn't... Uh, our relationship and how we related to each other never changed. I mean, it changed physically, but even in that, you know, we were still affectionate with one another. Um, you know, we still, when we walked down the street, still held hands and still, you know, felt the same love for one another. And um, so, you know, I, I think that we had so much, so we had the core of our relationship. Um, we enjoyed a nice physical relationship when we were young, but it, our relationship did not depend on that. And that's saying nothing about physical relationships. They're wonderful, but we had many other things. Um, and the most important seemed to be a belief in one another's work, uh, confidence in one another. And beings were both workers, and I'm such a worker. Uh, that, in the end, much more important because I still make use of that. If I feel lacking confidence or I, you know, doubt myself, I he's always right there, scolding me and pushing me on. And uh, Robert always wanted me to be successful. He always wanted me, you know, have a hit record or be big or be, you know. And uh, I didn't care that much, as, well, certainly not as much as him. But it's just like Robert. I have to say that at least in America, this is the biggest success I've ever had. <laughs> and damned if it doesn't have Robert's picture on it. <laughs> so um, I'll uh, just um, try this. One late afternoon, Robert and I were walking down 8th Street when we heard Because the Night blasting from one storefront after another. It was my collaboration with Bruce Springsteen, the single from the album Easter. Robert was our first listener after we had recorded the song. I had a reason for that. It was what he always wanted from me. In the summer of 1978, it rose to number 13 on the top 40 charts, fulfilling Robert's dream that I would one day have a hit record. Robert was smiling and walking in rhythm with the song. He took out a cigarette and lit it. We had been through a lot since his fir he first rescued me from the science fiction writer. Oh, isn't that intriguing? <laughs> you have to buy it to find out. And we shared an egg cream on a stoop near Tompkins Square. Robert was unabashedly proud of my success. What he wanted for himself, 
he wanted us for he wanted for us both. He exhaled a perfect stream of smoke and spoke in a tone he only used with me, a bemused scolding, admiration without envy, our brother-sister language. Patty, he drawled, you got famous before me. <laughs> Thank you. Well, this was so easy and so nice, I have to challenge myself and do something really embarrassing. So I... But... Uh, like to try this little experiment and uh, thank you very much for coming I'm sorry I can't stay any longer but I, I still have another rehearsal to do and uh, for our benefit tomorrow for one of my favorite little churches so um, anyway so I'll try this <clears throat> take me now baby here as I am Pull me close, try and understand. Desire is hunger, is the fire I breathe. Love is a banquet on which we feed. Come on now, try and understand the way I feel under your command. Take me now as the sun descends. They can hurt you now. Can't hurt you now, can't hurt you now, because the night belongs to lovers, because the night belongs to us, because the night belongs to lovers, because the night belongs to us. Have I doubt when I'm alone? Love is a ring, the telephone. Love is an angel disguised as lust. Here in our bed until the morning comes. But come on now, try and understand the way I feel under your command. Take me now, come undercover. They can't hurt you now, can't hurt you now. Can't hurt you now. Forgot one. Uh, gotta help me. Because the night belongs to lovers. Because the night belongs to us. Because the night belongs to lovers. Because the night belongs to us. Now here's the part. Where Lenny K plays his solo, and everybody's excited, and everybody gets crazy, and everybody starts screaming, and then I come and say, <laughs> Although we're filled with doubt, the vicious circle turns and burns without you, oh, I cannot forget. <laughs> Forgive the yearning, burning, I believe. It's time to feel, reveal, and touch me now. Touch me now. Touch me now. Hey, because the night belongs to lovers. Because the night 
belongs to us because the night belongs to lovers because the night belongs to us because we believe in the night we're lovers because we believe in the night we trust because the night belongs to lovers because the night belongs to love thank you Thank you, everybody. Thanks a lot. I'm a... Uh, uh, I ha I have to I'm not supposed to eat so much chocolate and uh <laughs> even though part of the cake has been ravaged there is still some cake down there. So uh thank you Terry for the beautiful cake. The only reason I'm leaving it behind is cuz I'm not supposed to eat it and I'll sit up all night eating it. <laughs> but I had a big 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 old chunk. And uh thank you for coming. I just wanted to say um I like doing uh, that or even doing an a cappella song. When I first began performing in 1971, that's what I did. So it's good to always uh, be able to fall back on your old career. So, Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 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 Mm